On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. It's a piece of deep psychological acuity carried in our religious traditions that each of us is defined as much by who our enemies are and how we treat them as by who and what we love. Yet love of enemies right now feels as quaint and impractical, as countercultural and surely counterproductive as at any time in my life. So this hour, we are revisiting an on-being classic conversation with two American Buddhist leaders, Robert Thurman and Sharon Salzberg. Across a half-century conversation and friendship, they've investigated the rich and pragmatic mind science behind this virtue and practice. How to transmute the very real, very consequential and consuming energy that anger and hatred are as much as they are emotions. And why love, in fact, is the most rational and pragmatic of stances towards our enemies. And thus we must retrain the well-worn grooves in our psyches which tell us that love is weak and vengeance is strong. The word love is so loaded, and our fear, of course, is that it means something very passive and complacent, and I'm going to let people hurt me, and I'm going to let them oppress other people, and I'm going to be a doormat, and uh, it's very hard to see love as a force, as a power, rather than as a weakness, but that is its, its reality. The hopeful thing for some people who like their anger, and some people do like their anger, that energy of strong powerful energy can be ridden in a different way and can be used to heal yourself. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Robert Thurman was the first American to be ordained a Tibetan Buddhist monk by the Dalai Lama. Sharon Salzberg is one of the original circle of young Americans who traveled to India in the 1960s and 1970s and introduced Buddhism into mainstream Western culture. They've both written many books, but they co-wrote Love Your Enemies in 2013, and that's when I spoke with them together. What we want to, I want to focus on with you as we speak is this teaching and thinking you're doing about enemies in the broadest sense of how we approach that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd I like to start with just a little bit about um, w- whether there was a spiritual background to your childhood and also whether, you know, in your earliest life, you know, how language and a sense of enemies was present for you, um, spiritually mm-hmm. or otherwise. No, that's very interesting. I don't know that there was a spiritual presence in my earliest life. There was certainly the presence of a lot of suffering and confusion. Yeah. And out of that, I uh, out of that I really reached for something that, I, and I actually did sense always. Not that it was given unto me, but I always had a sense there was something other. There was something bigger than the the situations I found myself in. And you know, my uh, childhood was marked by a lot of disruption and a lot of loss. My mother died when I was very young, and and all of this was surrounded by a very strange kind of silence. No one would ever actually talk about anything. And so it was when I went to college and I first encountered the Buddhist teaching in an Asian philosophy course, ironically, 
which I honestly think I chose just because it was like on Tuesday or something. That's where I first heard the Buddha saying, there's suffering in life. It's not just you. You don't have to feel aberrant and alone and weird. It's, it's a part of life and you belong. And, and that was an enormous opening for me. And, and then I heard that you can do something about that suffering, not the kind of, you know, suffering of circumstance. It doesn't mean everything's always going to be pleasant or it's going to level off into this delightful place. But we can be different with everything. We can approach everything in a different way with a full heart and and with wisdom. And and that possibility is what sent me off to India. Hmm. And Bob... um how about you? Was there was there a spiritual background to your childhood, and and was there a sense or a vocabulary well, I, of enemies? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I I didn't have quite such a dramatic um, situation as Sharon did. My parents survived, um, although they both died fairly young, fifties and sixties, which to me is fairly young mm-hmm. <laughs> now. Mm-hmm. But um, my mother's spiritual thing was Shakespeare, <laughs> and she felt Shakespeare was the Buddha. And my father did have a little bit mystical side in relation to some of the French and Italian and Spanish Catholic thinkers, but he was not a Catholic, and we weren't church-going particularly. But I, and I didn't like, though, I didn't like God much. Mm-hmm. I liked Jesus. I thought he was very sweet. And his whole scene about, you know, the, every bird and the lilies of the valley and the Sermon on the Mount, I, I, I liked that. But then God was behind the scenes there, like, you know, sacrificing him. And I mean, I just thought that was weird. <laughs> and I didn't believe in his omnipotent creatorship at all. And that was made me, put me into a debate mode with, with the pastor in the place where I went to play basketball and sing, on <laughs> uh, the brick church on Park Avenue. <laughs> but it was really with the Buddha who really got to me. Hmm. And uh, in the Tibetan form, when I finally found the Tibetans, right, right. that really did to me. Although one funny thing, I wasn't that into Tibet per se. I was really into India. Hmm. But the thing is that the, that the Indian Buddhist great revolution in the world, great manifestation in the world, is is preserved in Tibet very powerfully. Right, right. And lost in India, you know. So right. I, I, that was, I think, why I was so captivated by the Tibetans, not to mention the Dalai Lama's personality and so on. And how did the two of you um, come to be doing these workshops and teachings together on this subject of enemies? <laughs> Is there a story I don't know there? How did it happen? Yet? How did it happen? Well, Bob, Bob and I are old friends. Bob, um, before he was at Columbia, was at Amherst College, and the center that I co-founded, the Insight Meditation Society, is in Barry, Massachusetts, which is yeah. about say forty forty-five minutes away from Amherst, and so. I remember Bob living in this big yellow house, and these were the days when the Dalai Lama would come to visit, and right. as I'm told, you know, wander around Bob's house, opening up closet doors and saying <laughs> things did. like, "Oh, very messy, <laughs> untidy, <laughs> untidy." Um, you know, and so we uh, we got to be friends, and then Bob came to New York City, Columbia, and eventually they established this gorgeous retreat center uh, called Menla Mountain. Uh, center in uh, Phoenicia, New York, and we began teaching there together, and we began teaching this particular workshop together because mm. we come from two different strands of Buddhist tradition, and yet we uh, we enjoy, I think we both enjoy really exploring the relevance of these teachings to modern life, really, as we find it. 
Right, right. Right. And I think what's so... Um, you know, such an important starting point is is, is this this reality base that I, I so love in Buddhism, right? Is even talking about something as as painful uh, and contentious as enemies, and really starting with the fact that um, that everything is always constantly changing, even things that are good, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that. In life, there will be suffering and we will be harmed. And so that there, this is a reality, not something that you begin mm-hmm. by wishing away. Or, I mean, you know, you have to work with it, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think that's that's exactly right. And we we face it. We find inner enemies. We find outer enemies. We make things of life like death or suffering enemies. Um Life is is complicated. It's challenging. It's wonderful. It's it's all of that, and mm-hmm. uh, sort of trying to pretend that that won't happen. That we're just going to be uh, perfectly content all of the time and not face these challenges is is completely unreal. And I think it's much more important, obviously, and much more powerful to start with what's real. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I always like to say Buddhism is engaged realism. Mm, mm-hmm. Because they say that Buddha himself discovered the nature of reality, completely understood it fully and totally, and also understood that other beings could do so, and also understood that only by such discovery can you find freedom from that suffering. If you really know the reality, then you will be free of the suffering, was his real innovative teaching, which has lasted now for thousands of years. Yeah. So realism... Being realistic is is the key, you know. And um, and I I do want to kind of go through uh, the way you unfold this subject of enemies. So, you know, in a sense, um, all of this w- w- thinking about enemies circles back to inner work. But but let's start with the the reality of of outer enemies, as you say. I mean, those others who make our lives difficult. Um, you know, one of the things, Bob, that you've written is, it is highly rational for us to love our enemies, <laughs> which I think puts two <laughs> things together, uh, rationality and love of enemies, which uh, is, is an in- interesting juxtaposition. <laughs> what right. do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, Jesus is the one who used that phrase. Yeah, but it's the hardest prominently teaching. in our memory. <laughs> yes. Although Buddha used the same phrase, actually, in a slightly different phrasing. Buddha said that hatred will never come to an end by hatred. Only love can overcome hatred, is what he said. Although usually in that tradition, the Burmese or Theravada tradition, uh, the Buddhists have a mid uh, a midway station where they talk about hatred, and the next step is non-hatred. Mm. <laughs> and then once you've got non-hatred going, you can move over toward love and compassion. <laughs> I, I think you that's know. useful. I think that's really yeah, yeah, useful. Yeah, it is, it is. They're very psychologically astute about that sort of thing, I, I, I totally think. Yeah. But the reason why it's rational in a Buddhist sense is that the Buddhist worldview is that we live in a much larger continuity than a single lifetime. We've all had infinite previous lifetimes, and we have all will have infinite future lifetimes. And I would, and uh, Mahayana Buddhists, I think, would argue, and maybe ultimately Theravada would agree, that that will be endless also, the future. And so even if you win one round in one life over one enemy, then you have become like that enemy by being violent, angry, 
whatever it may be, and then your rebirth will become something more appropriate to an inner state of anger and violence and hatred. And therefore, you'll be more in conflict with your environment and with others. So therefore, to love the enemy is highly rational from your own inner perspective in that sense. And actually, in the outer perspective, if you, if you take the definition of love as wishing for the happiness of the beloved, which is the Buddhist definition of it, then if your enemy was really happy... He might get tired of bothering, he or she might get tired of bothering to be your enemy. Okay. Like, why bother chasing that guy? You know, I'm having a groovy time over somewhere else. So in a way, it's kind of makes sense to wish the enemy to be happy. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's, <laughs> it is reasonable when you put it in that kind of framework. But, uh, uh, you know, something that I think about a lot is that... Um, I think you know. Say in Christianity, it's all, this is often discussed as there's the the problem of evil, or you know, great enemies. Is and even maybe in our culture, we tend to focus on these dramatic, you know, drama-sized enemies. You know, the bully or the catastrophic danger or the murderer. But right. you know, something that I'm aware of in real life, day to day, I think so much pain and suffering is caused by, I don't know what I would even call maybe the near outer enemy, right? Not the villain out there, but um, the people people close to us, you know, in, in workplaces or in families mm. or in friendships. I don't know, Sharon, I, I think I remember that in your early life, you know, you said that your mother died, that you were in different foster families. And I mean, it's like people are vulnerable um, and it's it's those people who are have a power... Uh, such a destructive mm-hmm. power to do damage in those circumstances, and and that's where I feel like you know in the real life, as you say, Bob, in a, in this lifetime, uh, kind of the rubber meets the road. So I mean, mm-hmm. where do these beautiful teachings start to speak it there? Well, actually, I wasn't in foster families, but I was in different family configurations. Oh, okay, when, all right. Uh, I tried to calculate it once, and I think I was in five different family configurations wow. when I left for college at <laughs> oh, the age of wow. sixteen. Right. Um, but I, I think that's that's so crucial. I, I want to say something about that middle place, learning to stop hating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, apart from because the word love is so loaded, and what does it mean? Our our fear, of course, is that it means something very passive and complacent, and I'm going to let people hurt me, and I'm right, going to let right. them oppress other people, and I'm going to be a doormat. And uh, it's a very uh, nuanced and subtle quality. It's very hard to see love as a force as a power rather than as a weakness, but that is its its reality. So that middle place is very compelling, whether it's a colleague at work who's sort of annoying or it's somebody who disappoints us um, just in the neighborhood or our community yeah. or it's the villain uh, even, um, to have some recognition that the way we can be consumed by hatred or even just an obsession, you know, that mm-hmm. that habit we can have of going over someone's faults again mm. and again and again. It's the same list, but mm. we'd like to go over it again, you know, <laughs> a few more times. And uh, the way we give over so much of our energy mm-hmm. to someone else in this kind of negative or destructive way. And, uh, you know, whether it's a minor annoyance or a very grave injustice, there's a way in which we want to be whole. And we don't want to have lost so much of our life's energy to someone else's actions or problems. And we want that energy to return to us and, and for us to be able to go on in a more creative, generative way. And, 
And that's the process. That's that's why people engage in this process. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so what do you mean? What tell me the process? Describe that. Well, I think first being aware of uh, how it actually feels to be frightened, to be so angry, to uh, be so consumed with somebody else, to be able to see those states, to be able to have a little more distance or space from to those d- states. To just gain and, some self-awareness about the fact that that you are going over and over that and letting it consume yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Way. And how mm-hmm. it feels, because then we want to let go out of the greatest compassion for ourselves, not because we're trying to be a goody-goody or a certain kind of person or meet a you know, kind of image of how we're supposed to be or or match, uh, you know, someone else's uh, dictum of how we're supposed to be. But out of the greatest love and compassion for ourselves, we just don't want to do that anymore. Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, rethinking love of enemies with two old friends and icons of American Buddhism, teacher Sharon Salzberg and scholar Robert Thurman. Bob, what are you, what are you thinking well, about this? My, um, and why I'm thrilled to imply a link between Buddha and Jesus, which is mainstream in our culture, uh, showing their commonality is that Jesus's own statement of you know love thine enemies is negated really by our modern materialistic psychology. In other words, mm-hmm. the modern psychology says, oh that's unrealistic. Freud said, oh that's unrealistic. You have to have you know you have to be more normal, and so our sort of militaristic society's working psychology is that you have to be ego-competitive, you have to like be aggressive, you have to do your thing, particularly with males, but I think in general with everybody. And Buddhism doesn't want to interfere with the religious aspect in the West. It's not trying to convert people to Buddhism, uh, but it has a psychology, a kind of mind science that is usable within whatever religious framework. And so I kind of, you know, Jesus himself because of the social circumstances in his culture, was only able to teach for four years. And the Buddha, poor guy, he had to slave away for 46 years after his (laughs) enlightenment. And so he had time to provide more practical methodologies to underlie these sort of high moral-sounding slogans like love your enemy. And uh, there can be such a thing. Now, now, the other thing, of course, that we haven't mentioned yet, but both Sharon and I are completely agree with, there is such a thing as tough love, or in, in Tibetan, we would, the Tibetans would might prefer maybe the expression fierce compassion. And uh, this is like where you don't indulge another person in their evil doing or their nasty behavior, and sometimes you have to be forceful. But that forcefulness with them will have a different impact and will be subliminally sensed by them as coming from a different place when it doesn't have that extra bite, that extra sting of hatred and vindictiveness in it. It's just forceful opposition to whatever negative things they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the psychology of love your enemies does not just mean come and trample us, come kill me, my enemy. Oh, yes, I'm going to shoot me or something. It, It means... You know, I want you to be happy. 
I'm going to be happy no matter what. And, and it's better, you'll be more happy if you don't kill me, actually. <laughs> and I might be more happier if you don't kill me, but I'm going to be happy whatever you do to me. But on that basis, I might strongly, I might take your weapon away. I might be forced, I try not to kill you, but I, would, I might be forced to do something forceful. Um, you know, I wonder, as you, as the two of you live with these teachings, um, as exacting as that kind of life drama is, there's, there's also... It may be hardest of all to put these kinds of things into practice, you know, say, in your most intimate relationships, right? And, um, do you find yeah. that as you work with these teachings, and I know you both have long-time meditation practices, that do, do you become more able to um, modulate your responses like that? <laughs> well, now, there you go. I, 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 one thing, one thing I didn't say about when when Sharon and I, I this gives me a chance to go backtrack a little and talk okay. about when Sharon and I got together. Um, you know what? Why I love working with Sharon, and why I still love working with Sharon. And, and uh, I was a little uh, in my Buddhist studies had a different path, and in the Tibetan tradition, traditionally. They do not encourage people to meditate right away, actually. So they, they press you to, to learn things. And my original teacher, this wonderful old Mongolian gentleman named Geshe Wangyal, who was a Mongolian who'd been in Tibet for 35 years and was a good friend of the Dalai Lama and his relatives, uh, he kept interrupting me when I would try to meditate. And I was having some kind of really good you know, altered states. <laughs> and the guy had like radar and he would show up and he would interrupt me three in the morning. He'd come and like knock on the door of my room and say, you're, you're, you're not sleeping. Why are you wasting your time? What are you doing? Meditating? That's a waste of time. Come have some yogurt in the kitchen, this kind of thing. He would, he would tend to do that. So all this, then I became a scholar, of course, and a professor and et cetera. And so I, I really envied Sharon and Jack and Joseph and those guys who had this, who had, they were professionally meditating. They could meditate all the time. <laughs> And I think Sharon is more calm than I am and more stabilized <laughs> and more enlightened. And so I like being around her. It makes me more calm and more stabilized, more in the moment. Although the, although meditation is so much in demand in our society now that they're all becoming these terribly busy meditators. <laughs> and they're doing a lot of their work on planes and trains. It's and, competitive meditation. And, oh, that's right. <laughs> but anyway, they are like that. So that was what uh, that's what I just wanted to bring up. So then in my own case about the anger thing, it was always a big problem for me in my life. I tended to have an explosive temper. So definitely Buddhism has helped me, but I'm not, I'm, I don't claim to be enlightened, so I'm not saying that I'm totally 100% cured. But like the Dalai Lama likes to say, he also loses his temper, he says. And he likes to say that, well, nowadays it only lasts for a second and he doesn't hold the bitterness about it. And sometimes, very often, it doesn't last. So, so I think I still have a harder time with it. But I'm still working on it, and I like being with Sharon because she encourages me to be more mindful and try to interrupt the mechanism of the anger explosion. You know, the tough, so which I could, which which then I have the danger of rationalizing and saying, "Oh, it's tough love or fierce compassion." Actually, I'm just mad. short break, more with Robert Thurman and Sharon Salzberg. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation. 
funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we are examining love of enemies as a rational and pragmatic move, an antidote to a consuming culture of anger that is not a way most of us want to live. We are learning from the wisdom, the mind science, and the long friendship between the American Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg and scholar Robert Thurman. He was the first American to be ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition by the Dalai Lama. So talking about dealing with outer enemies ultimately always leads back to inner work, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's that tremendous irony and poignancy of life that we can't look, even if we do see somebody's uh, wrong actions and malevolent speech or whatever as coming from a place of suffering, which we, you know, we do believe it is. And even if we see that, yeah. even if we perceive that, the great poignancy of life is that you can't look at somebody else and say, poof, your suffering's gone, you know, mm-hmm. you're a better person now. Um, you know, we don't have that kind of control. We don't have that kind of dominance. And I usually say when I'm teaching, you know, I think it would likely be a better world if I did, if any one of us did, but we don't. And so we we understand that and we do what we can, obviously, to change conditions and uh be helpful, be restorative, you know, work to to try to make things different. But um, it's not going to be in our hands, ultimately, what we can mold much more successfully, although that is also not a case of, poof, now I'm better. Yeah. Uh, but we can work with ourselves, with our own minds and hearts, and mm-hmm. become really actually transformed in a real way. So just how do you start at the most basic level of talking about where where that work begins? Well, for me, it would begin with mindfulness. It would begin with what we were talking about earlier, just a, a sense of looking, because we actually don't know. We we know what we've been taught, that maybe uh, vengefulness is good, that love is weak, uh, whatever it might be, the assumptions we carry, the concepts, and and we need to take a direct look at the entire range of our emotional landscape to know for ourselves, you know, is vulnerability always wrong? Is... Um, that kind of defensiveness always right. What is the strength of anger? It does have energy, which is fantastic. It's a great attribute, but look at that brittleness. Look at that sense of tunnel vision. You know, if you think about the last time you were really, really, really angry at yourself, it's probably not also a time where you think, you know, I did that great thing that very same morning. I said that really stupid thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's gone. Our whole sense of who we are and all that we will ever be just collapses around that stupid thing we said. And and so we look at the whole nature, the flavor, the texture of all of these states, and and we then use the mindfulness to really work with letting go with what we feel is bringing us down and making our lives smaller and more filled with suffering and enhancing and enriching those qualities that really bring us to the reality which is that we're all connected and that we need to care about one another and ourselves. You know, it's marvelous. Mm, marvelous. I think physically as well as emotionally we we instinctively I can certainly speak for myself in this, you know, recoil from the reality of feeling vulnerable or afraid, right? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we we layer. I mean, anger gets layered on top of that because it feels like a more powerful response. And mm-hmm. and but then we mm-hmm. stop being able to tell the difference ourselves, right? You don't. You right. you stop right. knowing. I'm scared. You say I'm angry. You know, Sharon, I know one thing that I've you've said in different ways at different times, and I just found this. These were words, I think, from another interview you gave as I was getting ready to talk to you again. You know, it's one of life's big mysteries to me, you said, that we don't talk to each other about the most common things, like the fact that we wake up in the morning feeling confused and scared and full of self-doubt. The miracle is when mm-hmm. someone finally names it, that's so liberating. And mm-hmm. I mean, really, what you're talking about is being honest, and it's the most frightening thing to admit that you're afraid, but what a relief. Mm-hmm. What a relief when we can do that. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's like me as a um, 15-year-old or 16-year-old, or I guess I was maybe 16 or 17 at that point in college at that Asian philosophy course, you know, to hear that the Buddha said right out loud, there's suffering in life. Guess what? It's not just you. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to hide or, or you know, sort of seek others who are suffering to be hidden from you. It's not, it's not like that. This is part of the nature of things. And, and if we could just be open and truthful, as you say, and uh, admit that, then we would find one another in that vulnerability instead of feeling so cut off and so apart. Hmm. Bob, what are you thinking? What am I thinking? Yeah, as you're listening to that. Do <laughs> well, you want to add anything? That, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, what I was thinking was that, uh, you know, there's a word in, uh, in Buddhism called klesha or kilesa in Pali, klesha in Sanskrit, which comes from a verb root that means to twist, to something to be twisted. And... Um, it's translated defilement or affliction by some people. I used to translate affliction. But the best word for it actually is addiction. Mm. And so anger and uh, obsession, uh, lust, these things are said to be addictions. If you, and that immediately gets the point across. In other words, it's something that people think is helping them because it gives them a momentary relief from something else. Mm. But actually, it's leading them into a worse and worse place where they're getting more and more dependent and less and less free. And so... D- dependent, uh, dependent because that because you're, the way you're handling it is then all entangled with the partly, other person? Yes, part, right, partly. And partly because you believe when anger comes to you, out, meaning in the form of an impulse that you have internally, mm-hmm. this is intolerable, that person did this, this is like something. You know, it's what sort of the inner thought that comes... And it seems to come in a way that is undeniable. You have to act on it. Mm-hmm. It mobilizes right. your adrenaline, your solar plexus, your arms, your body. Heat flushes up into your face. It sort of goes along with a whole complex of things, and you just charge ahead or say something awful or whatever you do. Or you put away in your mind some, some nasty scheme that you're going to implement later if for some reason you can't do it right away. So in other words, it takes you over. And that's where mindfulness can interfere with that by being aware of how your mind works and realizing that it's just one impulse and it's one voice within you. And there's another questioning voice and an awareness voice that can say, well, actually, would this be a good idea to blow your top now? (laughs) Or, you know, it's like I always like to say it's like otherwise you're like a TV set that has one channel only and no clicker. Mm -hmm. So if you have I don't remember what that's like. (laughs) 
<laughs> if you have the horror, if you have the horror show rising up yeah. from your solar plexus, then you got to have a horror show. Whereas you can click mm -hmm. to the nature show, you know, you can watch the, <laughs> the minnows frolicking in the lake, you know, in the summer. So I'm saying, you know, that we are very clickable, we're very switchable in our, our moods and minds. And then the key is the, the hopeful thing for some people who, who like their anger. Some people do like their anger. Hmm. The hopeful thing is that that energy of heat, kind of like a heat, and actually for, in Buddhist psychology, anger is connected to intelligence, to analytic and critical intelligence. Hmm. And uh, so that energy of strong, powerful energy of heat, force, can be can be ridden in a different way and can be used to heal yourself, can be used to develop inner strength and determination. And that is really a, something much to be to be ambitious for. That is a great, great goal. Mm. I, I think also that kind of transmutation is um, is connected to the, this particular Buddhist uh, notion of metta, loving kindness, which mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which holds not just some kind of compassion towards others, which can be hard to muster, um, but compassion towards oneself, which makes compassion be towards, can be hard. <laughs> yeah, can be harder. Right, can be harder. <laughs> but makes all kinds of for, things possible. You know, one should not confuse compassion for oneself with self-indulgence. Right. 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 That's a difficult. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, you know, metta, uh, that struck me so strongly when I first began practicing uh, metta or loving kindness. I was in Burma in 1985 when I first practiced it intensively in a structured way. And I always knew how it was done. I always knew that classically you began with yourself, which I found kind of confusing because I thought, well, surely the higher path, the more spiritual way would be denying yourself and, uh, you know, some kind of self-abnegation and then, you mm -hmm. know, just focusing completely on others. And that would be the way. But going back to what is realistic yeah. or not, um, they also say that metta or loving kindness is a practice of generosity. It's like generosity of the spirit. And the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance because if we feel depleted and overcome and exhausted and just burnt out, we're not going to have the wherewithal inside, the sense of resourcefulness to care about anybody, even to notice them all that much. You know, just uh, it's not only um, a kind of self-indulgence, but it's a self-preoccupation that happens when we feel so undone, so unworthy, so incapable of giving or, or whatever it might be, however it might manifest. And and so I really do see that that factor of loving kindness for oneself is, is this tremendous sense of strength and resourcefulness in terms of connecting to others. And of of softness with oneself, making mm -hmm. that possible, which I know, you know, even when we're trying to be altruistic or generous, we're hard on ourselves, right? We, we push ourselves. And this is a different it's a different attitude. Oh, it's very different. I mean, I guess the, the one question that's very interesting to reflect on is how do I actually learn best? How do I change? How do I grow? Is it is it through that kind of belittling myself and berating myself and humiliating myself? And, or is it through something else, some other quality like self-compassion and recognizing the pain or unskillfulness of something I've done or said and uh, having the energy to actually move on. So where does that energy come from? It comes from not being stuck. And how do we get unstuck? In effect, it's from forgiving ourselves and realizing, yeah, it happened, it was wrong. 
uh, I'm going to go on now in a different way because I'm capable of that. I am capable of change. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, rethinking love of enemies with two old friends and icons of American Buddhism, teacher Sharon Salzberg and scholar Robert Thurman. One of the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines that you describe towards, you know, towards living in this healthier way um, with the reality of our lives and of enemies in them, inside and without, is uh, this notion, this discipline of looking for the good in others, <laughs> and and I mean, which really in our culture where we're so we're so, we're, we're trained to, um, well, at a really basic level, to see what has gone wrong today as the news, right? That's what mm-hmm. that's what we look at. That's what that's what our eyes and our attention is trained to see. Um, this notion of looking for the good in others, even, even and especially people who we may identify as enemies, um, and one of the principles of that that's, that's you know so so liberating to think about is that just as we are all changing every day, both on a cellular mm-hmm. level and psychological level as we move through life, so are the people who. It's difficult for us to share the planet with and sort of kind of acknowledge, right? <laughs> Acknowledging that that possibility in others as well. Well, it's really true. I first was given that as a meditation instruction when I went to Burma in 1985, and I was doing that period of intensive loving kindness practice. And one of the first suggestions my, my meditation teacher, Saida Upandita, said, gave to me was, Think of different people you have different feelings for, different kind of relationships with, and see if you can find one good thing about them. And my very first thought was, I'm not going to do that. I thought, that's what stupid people do. They go around looking for the good in people. I don't even like people who do that. I'm not going to do that. But as I usually tell the story, I was very far from home. I was in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, I don't feel like it. It's like, you do it. So I did it, and it was so interesting because, you know, of course my fear had been that I was going to overlook the things that were really wrong and I was going to become conflict avoidant, and it wasn't at all like that. I realized that if I just obsessed about everything that was wrong one more time, it wasn't (laughs) onward leading in any way, but if I could find one good thing about somebody, I actually felt a sense of connection to them or kinship mm-hmm. with them so that I could directly and honestly look at what was difficult, but it was almost like from a different place instead of across this huge gulf of separation. And I even thought of somebody I really found incredibly obnoxious, I think in a very <laughs> reasonable way. I think he was pretty obnoxious, uh, not just to me. Right. But I had this memory that came up in my mind of once having seen him do this incredibly gracious, kind thing for somebody else that we both know. And he did this act in the in the best possible way so she didn't feel condescended to or put down or pitied in any way. He just did it so beautifully. So his memory came up in my mind, and then I thought, 
I don't want to think about that. It complicates <laughs> things. It was easier when he was like all bad all the time. Right, you know? right. But life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. We are complicated too. Yeah. You know, I think this all also gets at something else that really intrigues me in the way the two of you talk about our whole life with enemies and with suffering, and that is this very intriguing idea of healing our relationship with time, befriending mm-hmm. time, and in that way also tapping into a spaciousness and a perspective. Could you talk a little bit more about that and, and how to, I mean, it's such a wonderful idea. You know, what, what, what do you offer in terms of teaching, in terms of helping people draw close to that idea as a reality? It's like the tyranny of time, you know. I don't have enough time. And right. There's, yeah, there's de- never enough time. And whatever yeah, happened to yeah. my life, you know, it's passed by like a dream. Where's, it goes faster and where's faster. That time? Believe me, as you reach this eighth decade. <laughs> trust me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not that much younger, really. <laughs> that was nice of you to say. But, um, but this notion uh, of the infinite in each moment and somehow, yeah. the, oh, which that's is, great. right, which is not a, it's not something we learn anywhere in our yeah. lives now. And so how to, how to apprehend that knowledge, uh-huh. how to really claim well, that Well, I think knowledge. that, you know, there's so much power we potentially have when we realize how our interpretation and our assumptions and our perception affects our experience and that. We don't have to be mired in old ways of seeing that we don't have to feel stuck, even if we start out there. Mm-hmm. That's part of what happens through the meditative process is that you realize you have a kind of flexibility around things. And it's not, you know, again, to be sort of in the realm of wishful thinking or being a goody-goody, but to realize I don't need to be stuck. You know, if I'm in the habit of seeing at the end of the day, looking back at the day and pretty well only remembering what went wrong, I can actually move my attention mm-hmm. very consciously and intentionally to what went right, not to pretend that was the only thing that happened, but to kind of fill in the picture, you know, to be uh, more inclusive. And, and we can do that with time as well. I very much admire the contemporary teacher Eckhart Tolle and how he, his concept of the power of now and all of that, and how he gets away from time by helps people do that, it always leads them back to the present moment and unfolding the richness of the present moment. So then, not only do you enjoy the richness of that moment, but if in that moment you can make something a tiny bit better, I mean, the color could be, instead of this drab beige, it could be a, a more like rich beige, with a little more yellow tone, <laughs> and whatever tiny thing it is. You're, you're growing it for the infinite future and that little infinite positive change. If you're a little depressed or something, you, if you're sad about something in the past, then you do a little tiny change. You can live within that moment and it can, so that that moment is connected to the infinite future. Mm-hmm. Then that's a much richer moment. It's sort of, it's, it relates to what we call in Buddhist philosophy and psychology non-dualist or non-duality where... The, each moment is, of course, contains all, like a hologram. Each moment contains all the other moments infinitely. But also each future moment contains this moment and all the past moments. And therefore, the richness also connects to goodwill, to love and compassion. It isn't just an escape into a kind of null state, you know. Mm, that's, yeah, that's wonderful. 
There is a positive sense of time. For example, Buddha had a vow as a bodhisattva. He would not achieve nirvana or perfect blissfulness until all beings had achieved it. Then he achieved nirvana 2,500 years ago. And what about us? <laughs> well, what did he do with us? So technically speaking, we, we, in order to not accuse Buddha of abandoning us in this flow of time filled with suffering, yeah. we have to somehow imagine that it's possible that in that moment he found our future liberation moment. Mm, yeah. And that's in the Buddhist story. That, that's there in the Buddhist story, how he saw everybody else's future life and past life in the moment, just as he was attaining enlightenment. It, it says so in all the versions of his story. It, is, it makes me so think of, really um, nice. of Einstein saying that our physical perception of time is a linear thing of past, present, and future, and some kind of, as an arrow, is a stubbornly persistent illusion. Right. Exactly. He, right. Exactly. Um, but but our right our five senses conspire in that illusion. Um, of course. Let me let me ask you this: mm. Here in the twenty first century, so many people in the West, it, it really feels to me like there's this critical mass um, of people uh, exploring meditation, taking up meditation, yoga. Obviously, there's a real variety in the quality of all of that, you know, but, but there mm-hmm. it is. It's there. And so many people are finding something in it. And I, I just want to ask the two of you about, let's say, one of the most uh, kind of countercultural um, pieces of the ethos of that, that when you sit there and do this inward work of breathing and planting yourself in something, you know, that infinite goodness, um, or dedicating your your hour of yoga to other people, right? That somehow that act, what looks like a private act, does send something out into the world, does have an effect on the world. And I think that um, that's a pretty mysterious idea. So I'm curious about how you would, how you understand that. Does that make sense? Sure, I'll try. Well, I think, uh, of course, one of the main ways that we send a a different kind of energy out into the world is through our own actions. And as we make different choices and we speak differently to one another, and um, we brought one of our teachers to America pretty soon after we had come back ourselves, Um, this man named Menindra, and it was maybe a year or two after, and uh, and there was nothing compared to what's happening now, right. but there were some groups of, of people interested in meditation coming around as we went around the country, and we brought them around to to see them, and we were kind of proud, like, isn't it exciting? You know, there are like 40 people <laughs> right. in the country who are meditating, right. you know, something like that. And, uh, isn't it wonderful? And he said, oh, it is wonderful, and uh, there's just this one thing. He said, sometimes people in the West remind me of people sitting in a rowboat and with great sincerity and earnestness, they're rowing and rowing and rowing, but they refuse to untie the boat from the dock. (laughs) He said, you know, sometimes I think people are mostly interested in these great transcendent experiences and altered states of consciousness, but they're not all that interested in how they speak to their neighbor or how they are with their children. You know, know, so the most (laughs) profound transformation happens within us and then ripples out mm. because of how we are. It's like right. spirituality it's in our lives. It's still who you are piece, when you walk you know? out of the room, you're saying. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, but I do think, you know, I mean, certainly, in a, again, in a traditional culture like Burma, if you do uh, metta or loving kindness, 
practice, they will say the most important transformation is within your own mind and it's an energy. It is like an energy that – but it's like a gift, you know, that energy. It's like you can't insist someone like your gift. Mm-hmm. You can't insist that mm. they right. put it on right away or say that's the best book I've ever been given. Thank you. You know, it's, yeah. uh, all we can do is extend it. And uh, there are times when, you know, it can make for some some changes. We need to finish. I, I feel like this has been just such a great wide-ranging conversation. Is there, is there anything, anything either of you would want to add? I want Sharon to have the last word. I feel mm-hmm. like I should praise Bob after he yeah. lavishly praised yeah. me and said, well, I love being no. with Bob. Oh, well, that's <laughs> nice. He loves being Thank with me. You, Sharon. That's good. That's really nice. <laughs> Robert Thurman and Sharon Salzberg co-wrote Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier. He is president of Tibet House U.S. and was a professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies at Columbia University for 30 years. His many books include Inner Revolution. His newest work, published in 2021, is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. Sharon Salzberg is co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Her many books include Loving Kindness and, most recently, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.